Well, you're stuck with me today. Uh, Ryan is on vacation. They are over at, I believe they call it Roundhouse, and that's always a good trip for them. And they showed us a picture yesterday of how much they had put into their vehicle. And they said, the kids are back there somewhere. We're not sure where, uh, but they're in there. Don't worry. And so they'll be back, Lord willing, this Friday night. Uh, but keep them in your prayers as they're traveling. I believe they're in North Carolina. And I'm grateful that they're going to have such a good opportunity to have a family vacation. And why wouldn't I be? That's what we've been studying for the last several times we've been together. And we've been talking about the family. We've taken a vacation, so to speak, from our other regular sermons to talk about the family. And today is the finality of this series, and it's on the persistence of the family. We talked about the problem ahead the last time we were together and discussed this, how you're driving down the road on the vacation and you miss the sign that says problem ahead, and so you run into a problem. Perhaps it's a flat tire, it might be anything, but it causes a problem on your, your family vacation. What is supposed to be a trip to get away from all the problems has all of a sudden become another time to deal with a problem. And so we talked the last time about the problems that the family faces. Today I want to talk specifically about the persistence that is involved in the family. And so how can we be persistent? How is it that you and I can have more persistence in our lives? Well, number one, we could have a vision that is bigger than ourselves, have a vision that's bigger than ourselves. You know, as Christians, that's the point. Having a vision that goes beyond what we think, we have to have God's vision before us. But you have a vision that's bigger than yourself. It starts with the first step. If you want to learn something, you have to have a bigger vision in place. If you want to learn Spanish, it's going to take more than just saying one day I'm going to learn Spanish and then the next morning you wake up and are fluent. No, you have to work at it. You have to have a vision that's bigger than what you think needs to happen. In fact, if you shift from a self-centered goal to a bigger purpose, that affects those you love and it helps you focus on what you will get out of it instead of how hard it is. But then you need to build a support team. Number two, build a support team. If you're going to have good persistence, you need to have the right type of team to help you be persistent. Well, we're talking about the family. That's the support team. You have this support where mama and daddy are absolutely full in on God. They are the strongest individuals in the house. And when their children look to mama and daddy, they see nothing but strong parents in the faith. And they have a support team as well. But for the mother, she must be able to rely upon her husband. For the husband, he must be able to rely upon his wife in support. It's a two-way street. Support has to be given, and it also has to be received. And so we have to have a support team, but you need to have a growth mindset, number three. Have to have a growth mindset. Where do you want to go with this? How far do you want to grow in other words, you can celebrate small wins in progress, knowing that you're continuing to improve. You're not, you've not arrived yet, but you're on the right path. You're growing. You know, right now, anytime Adam learns something new, it's like he's won the Super Bowl in our house. We cheer and applaud, and, you know, today he stood up pretty much by himself. Uh, he, he just grabbed on 
to Megan's leg and just propped himself right up. And so we were like, yay, that's awesome. That's not a huge deal. I can do that very easily. But for him, it is a huge deal. He's 10 months old. And so it's a growth mindset. It's the biggest thing he's done so far. And so we're applauding him for that. We're letting him know that he's doing a good thing. Same thing needs to be done spiritually speaking. We must let each other know when small victories are done so that as we're on our way to the bigger victory, we have this motivation mindset. We have an idea of that we're actually accomplishing something. Finally, um, next to last, I should say, schedule it. Schedule it. You've got to write it down. You've got to put your goals down. If you're going to be persistent as a Christian family, you must schedule Bible time. You must schedule time to talk with your children about the Lord. As I am getting ready to have a son that gets older and older, I have to put myself in a position where I schedule time to talk to him about the Lord. If I don't schedule it, it won't get done. If I just say, well, I'll get to it, it won't get done. Do you know how I know that's true for me? Because I say that about other things and I forget to do them. And they're much smaller in comparison to talking about the Lord. But if I'll forget sometimes to put a check in the mail or I'll forget sometimes to pay a bill and I get a notice, oh, wow, we forgot to pay that, that's a pretty big deal, right? If I know that that's my problem, what do I need to do but set reminders to help me remember to pay the bill? And I must do the same when I'm talking to my children or to my spouse about the Lord. I schedule it. Finally, you teach others and you have stakes when you do it. Teach others. The research was done and it said the following. 5% of people know what they've learned because of a lecture. There's 10% of people that know what they learned because they read it. There are 20% of people who learned what they learned from an audiovisual lesson. 30% of people learn when they see a demonstration. 50 they learn when they're engaged in a group discussion. 75, when they learn what they practice, what they learn, that I should say. And 90% know what they learn when they teach it to someone else. You want to have a 90% success rate of retaining what you are learning? Teach it to another person. I can tell you that that is true with the gospel because as I teach the gospel to other people, as it is my job to do as the preacher, I can tell you I remember things a lot better having done that than I do when I just sit down and study and read something. Teaching it is always a good idea, but you have to have stakes. You have to put some type of punishment, if you will, if you don't do it. Something that actually causes you to want to do it. You know, the research also showed that we are more likely to not be late to a business meeting than we would to be late to a friend get-together. Why would we not be late for a business meeting? Well, we can get fired. So yeah, we're going to be on time for that. Friends aren't going to fire us. They're not going to keep us from having an income. But if you want to be persistent, this is how you do it, as far as an everyday type goal. But we're not just talking about everyday goals. We're talking about spiritual goals. And as you and I go through this lesson, I think you'll see these kind of come out in what we're discussing, but I want to take you to Deuteronomy chapter 6. We'll be in verses 1 through 12 this morning. Deuteronomy 6, verses 1 through 12. <clears throat> and I want you to first notice that God has to be in our families. Number one, God has to be in our families. 
That starts with the father. He is the head of the home. And it goes all the way down to the children. God must be in all of their lives. And he must be allowed to be in their lives. Notice Deuteronomy 6 and verse 1. Now this is the commandment, and these are the statutes and judgments which the Lord God has commanded to teach you, that you may observe them in the land which you are crossing over to possess. All of the Torah was expected to be kept. Everything. Now that's interesting. These statutes and commandments have I given to you that you keep them. So does that mean that God gave them something they couldn't possibly hope to keep? No. The Bible does not ever say that God puts more on his people. God does believe and he knows that it is possible to follow his law. But many families today have kind of given up on following after God's law, citing and stating it's too difficult. And we live under a better covenant than when this was written. Do you know all that had to be kept under this law? All the sacrifices and all the worship and all the different... There were sacrifices of sin. There were sacrifices of worship. There were sacrifices of grain. and There were so many different things that they were expected to keep. And yet God thought they could do that. And then we, t we teach and we read and we study from the book of Galatians and Hebrews and many other places in the New Testament that we are under a better covenant. How much more then can we follow what God has expected us to follow? We're under a better covenant. We don't have near as much to remember, near as many sacrifices, near as many obligations. Keeping the Sabbath, no longer a problem for us. We can keep the law. Everything in the Torah was expected to be kept. And they were told that they could keep it. They weren't given any excuse. They weren't told, well, maybe just, just do the best you can and everything will work out. No, God said, you can do this. But notice verse 2. That you may fear the Lord your God to keep all of the statutes and his commandments which I command you, you and your son and your grandson, all the days of your life and that your days may be prolonged. But today, our world wants to forget God, not fear him. They want to forget him. I want you to think about how people are trying to take God out of school. And they're also trying to take him out of government. You know this. Oh, we might have in God we trust on our money, but that doesn't mean that our government trusts in the Lord. We have some godly people in our government, I believe, and godly people in the, in the political realm but as a whole, they are not trying to do what God wants them to do. Otherwise, some of the very laws we have promoted in this nation wouldn't be laws. They wouldn't be promoted if we were truly trying to please God. We're trying to take God out of our lives. But also in social gatherings. No longer is it a normal thing for a social gathering of people to have a Bible discussion. It used to be, and we've talked about this before, that in the last 50 years or so that you could have had a Bible discussion with someone, brought out the Word of God, showed them what the Scriptures say, and that would have settled it. But now if you're at a social gathering and God is brought up, it's usually because His name's being used in vain. Not because they want to talk about Him. That's the only time God is usually brought into our gatherings anymore as a world. I'm not talking about here at the Somerville Church of Christ, but as a world, 
typically speaking, the only time you'll hear God discussed is when someone puts an oh my in front of it. We are taking the Lord out of every part of our lives in this world. I saw a comic book strip that had two characters, and one of them said to the following, why did God allow that school shooting to happen? And perhaps you've seen this comic book strip, and the other character responds, uh, how could he stop it? He's not allowed in school anymore. Now, I don't believe that God miraculously could stop a school shooter. I don't believe we're in the age of miracles anymore, but I do believe this. If our schools would teach more about God, if our nation would teach more about God, and our people would believe more about God, we'd have far less school shootings. We'd have far less shootings in general, acts of terrorism, acts of hatred, acts of violence. Those would go away. Why? Because that is not what the Bible teaches to do to fellow man. But because we have neglected God, how can we expect to have God in our lives when we will not follow the one who made this world? How can we expect him to bless us when we're not following him? That's the point of verse 2, that you will fear the Lord. When you fear something, you'll do whatever it takes to please that something. It's why we said earlier, you're, you're less likely to be late to a business meeting than to a friend gathering. You fear your boss and his ability or her ability to fire you so you show up on time. If you and I truly fear the Lord today, we will do what he asks. And our families will do what he asks. That's the point. And then you look at verse 3. Therefore, hear, O Israel, and be careful to observe it. Observe what? What we said in verse 1. The law, the Torah. Be careful to observe it, that it may be well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, as the Lord God your fathers has promised you, a land flowing with milk and honey. They would have multiplied in everything that they would have had. Everything that they could have possibly had would have been given to them from the Lord. Prosperity comes from God. It does not come from any other source. And you might be thinking, well, wait a minute. A lot of horrible people are prospering in this world. Yes, but every good and perfect gift comes from God, and money is a good and perfect gift. It has been used for evil, but it was a good gift when it was first created. Prosperity, true prosperity, comes from the Lord. And if you observe it, you'll be blessed in your health, that it may be well with you, and in your wealth, that you may multiply greatly. That's both wealth of a physical standpoint, where it's, you know, your children, you'll be multiplied greatly. It's wealth from a monetary standpoint, where you'll have no need, no reason to fear. Your bank will be overflowing in the sense that God will bless you with what you need and what I need. And then you look at verse 4. Hear, o Israel, the Lord is our God, and He is one. This was known as um, the Shema, or the Shema. That's the Hebrew word for hear. And in fact, the Israelites made this a daily prayer, the Shema. And we've talked about in Luke 9 when the brother said, Lord, first let me suffer to bury my father. In culture, there was nothing that would take place of saying the Shema unless your loved one died. You could forgo saying the Shema and then go bury your loved one. 
But that was it. Nothing else took place of that. That's how important this prayer was to the Jewish people. And it was to remind them who was in charge. The Lord, our God, is one God. There is only one God. Now, I know we talk about the Godhead. There's three that make up the Godhead. <clears throat> and I believe that. I believe there's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but there's only one Father. And even Jesus would say, I am subject to his will and his authority. There's only one Father. And this is a reminder that the children of Israel would continue even into the time of the New Testament writings saying on a regular basis, the Shema. But finally, you have verse 5 in this first point, and it talks about loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength. We are to love God <clears throat> with all of our heart, all of our means, right? All of our means, with all of our soul, from our inner being, with all of our might, with our physical strength, we love the Lord. Can this be said of our husbands and fathers, our wives and our mothers, our children, that we love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind. You know, if that's true, we won't sin. Not that we can't sin, but we won't sin. Because we love the Lord too much. But all of us, including me, have forgotten to love the Lord at some point in our lives or another and have neglected Him. But true love for God is a love that will prevent us from wanting to sin because we know what that does to our Lord. It bothers Him. Brethren, I have to beg with you this morning that God can be in your families, that you will put God in your families, that I want you to pray for me, that I will put God into my family. And husbands, fathers, it starts with us. That is the scripture. The husband is the head of the home. That is, if you don't love God enough, how can we expect our children to? Mamas, if you don't love God enough, how can we expect our children to? It starts with us. And if we're doing the right thing and our children still grow up and fall by the wayside, it's not your fault. You did what you could. But many parents have their children walk away from the Lord and they have to sit and ask themselves, if only I had gone to worship more, if only I had been more invested, would my children still be faithful? It starts with us. Number two, we have to saturate our children and ourselves with the Bible, the Word of God. Notice verse 6. These words which I command you today shall be in your heart. Out of the heart, man speaks as is in his heart, right? That's what the Bible teaches. And if the word of God is on your heart, that means you have saturated yourself with it. It's almost as if you have fully immersed yourself in the word of God. You're submerged completely. And so that everything that you do, everything that I do, everything that we say is from the Lord himself because we speak where the Bible speaks and we're silent where the Bible is silent. The old law, according to World Video Bible School notes, 
on the book of Deuteronomy was written on the heart also. For the love of God to be the right kind, the commandments of God must be put in the heart and be the constant subject of thought and conversation. But the only way to have a proper balance is to have a life full of God. And too many in this world cannot say that that is the case for them. They're not able to say that they have a life full of God. And at times, we have not been able to say that we have a life full of God. Notice verse 7. You shall teach them diligently your to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, walk by the way, lie down, and rise up. This covers all parts of the day. So what is the, what is the mindset here? Do not let a moment pass by where your children could be trained and you don't train them. I remember being in my mom and dad's house and living with them, and we would be taking a trip somewhere. We'd be driving to worship, and dad would say, kids, teachable moment. And we'd all groan. We'd go, oh, no, not another one. You know what now I remind myself with more often than not? Those moments. The moments that in the heat of the moment when it was happening, I couldn't stand it, and now... I'm even calling them up and, and trying to get more teachable moments. Dad, what would you do about this? How do you handle this? How do you handle that? I, I need guidance. My mom and dad didn't let a time pass where we weren't taught. And sometimes, if we're not careful, our children are going to learn the wrong things. Perhaps you remember the movie A Christmas Story? Famous movie. Comes on TBS all day for Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. They absolutely run it into the ground. And perhaps it's your family tradition to watch that movie on the television. Do you remember when they were changing the flat tire? And Ralph, the main character, let out a word he shouldn't have let out? And where did he learn that word? But from his daddy. His dad didn't realize... And his son was paying attention. And the point of that was, what we do as parents, what I do as my son's father, he will grow up and watch and soak in. And if I grow up as a child in a family that has a father that's not godly, I will not be godly. If I grow up with a father that saturates the family with the Bible, I'm not saying that you need to make every single minute of every day a lesson for your children. No, there are times for rest and relaxation and enjoyable moments. And sometimes we can have fun and it not be based upon some biblical principle. But we cannot let a moment go by where we are not willing to teach our children. Where I won't be willing to teach my son. And Lord willing, if we're blessed other children that we may have. But I want you to imagine for a moment that you come home and you hear your children in the next room and they're discussing some Bible subject. It's not something they heard in a Bible class or in a sermon or a devo. It's something they overheard you and your wife talking about at dinner or you and your husband talking about at dinner. Or it's something they heard in Bible time that you had at home where you had a family devotional and they're talking about it. 
How would that make you feel? But wonderful. That your children are thinking about biblical things. And you know, I have to be honest with you. We sadly sell our children short in this regard. We are so impressed when they know things about the Bible. According to Deuteronomy 6 and verse 7, it should be a standard, not an impressive thing. It should be something that we expect our children to be able to talk about certain biblical things. No, I don't expect our children to be able to expound on the Holy Spirit and the miraculous and how it doesn't... I don't expect that. But we sell our children short when we are so impressed that they know the 12 apostles and the books of the Bible and the plan of salvation. Deuteronomy teaches that if, if a parent's job is to teach his children any part of the day then what would the child's job be but to soak it up? And if the child's soaking up knowledge, what will they be but a well that's springing forth knowledge? We shouldn't be impressed. It should be the standard. And if we train our children, perhaps the way that we used to train our children, it would become the standard again. And I'm thankful that at this congregation, I believe that that's our goal. And I believe that that's what we do. That we're all trying to train our children in biblical matters, in biblical facts, in biblical teaching, so that they can grow up and teach others. It is a sad thing to send our children to school and they not be prepared to invite their friends to come to church and to answer certain basic biblical principles. Greatest compliment you could ever give me in my preaching is you make it so easy that a five-year-old can understand it. And if a five-year-old can understand it, other five-year-olds can understand it too. We've got to saturate our children and ourselves with the Bible. It starts at the home. Notice verse 8, you'll bind them as a sign on your hand and they'll be as frontlets between your eyes. You have the family binding God's word to their bodies, so to speak. This is not a literal binding. You know, you had the Pharisees and the Sadducees wearing what we call phylacteries. That was scripture boxes. And they would have these boxes hanging from their wardrobe and inside of them were scriptures. That's not what we're talking about here. They took this too literal. But it's a spiritual binding. You might see on the doorposts of some of our auditoriums throughout the brotherhood, enter to worship when you're coming into the auditorium. And then on the other side as you're leaving, leave to serve. What do they mean by that? But that when you enter an auditorium, it is to worship the Lord your God. When you're there on a Sunday or a Wednesday, you're there to worship God. When you leave the auditorium, you go out into the world to serve God by our actions. And it's a daily reminder. And if we do that with the word of God, we won't forget them. Verse 9. You'll write them on the doorposts of your house and of your gates so that you'll never forget them. So that every time you walk into your house and you walk out of your house, it's as if you're seeing the word of God on those doorposts. And we won't forget God if we saturate our lives with Him. Third and finally, we did not design the family. We have tried as a nation to reinvent the family, 
to change the family. But we don't have the credentials for that because we did not design the family. I want you to notice verse 10. So it shall be when the Lord your God brings you to the land which he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you large and beautiful cities which you did not build. Well, is it possible to forget God? Yes. When we serve ourselves, that's what the children of Israel would end up doing in the book of Judges. And how'd that work out for them? It was a disaster. And notice verse 10 and 11, though, how God lists all of these things that were blessings from him. You notice in verse 10, it talked about large and beautiful cities which you did not build. Verse 11, houses full of good things which you did not fill. Hewn out wells which you did not dig. Vineyards and olive trees which you did not plant. Who gave these things to them? Look at verse 13. Verse, verse 12, I should say. Then beware lest you forget the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. God is the one that did all of this. God is the one that brought them out of Egypt. God is the one that created the world. God is the one that said, it is not good that man should be alone, and so he gave him Eve. God is the same one that then said, be ye fruitful and multiply, creating the family as a whole, both husband and wife, children together. And if God is the one that created it, we do not have the right to try to change it or to try to act like we know what's best for it if it doesn't match what the Bible teaches. Now, I'm not saying that everyone has to teach their children the same way. Perhaps there's a certain method that works best for your family, and it won't work best for mine, or vice versa. That's fine. So long as we're always trying to teach them the Word of God, and we're speaking where the Bible speaks, and are silent where it's silent, I don't think the method matters, but the doctrine matters. Since we didn't design the family, we must bow to the one who did. And when he says it is composed of a man and a woman and children, however many that may be, then that is the only biblical family that can be presented. That's it. That's not hatred coming from us. That's not hatred coming from the Lord. If you come up with a game and you create the rules to it, you have that right. You created the game. I don't have the right when I play basketball to make a shot and say that's worth 10 points. Do you see how difficult that was? Michael, you're right under the basket. That's only two points. Unless you got fouled and then even then you're not guaranteed the third one, but at most you can only get three points out of that play. Who says? The people who created the game. That's the rule that they made. And I'm playing their game. Therefore, I must abide by their rules. The game of life was created by God. I must abide by His rules. And God, when He created the family, stated it would be one man and one woman and children if they were blessed to have them. And that is it. There was no other biblical family presented. Every other trying of a family is condemned by God husband and wife, man and woman. And since I didn't design it, since I didn't have the ability, or, and I don't have the ability to do it, I must follow the one who did. And the problem in the last few verses that we've studied is God was worried that they would forget the Lord. And what has happened? 
No, I believe you here today believe in the Lord. But we as a nation, as a world, have forgotten Him. We don't worship Him anymore like we once did. We don't talk about Him like we once did. It has become a standard and on any TV show, it has become a standard to have at least one gay character. At least. And on certain shows, they try to really saturate the mind with this, and they make it a whole family based around a gay character and his spouse or her spouse, their life partner. And I don't have any hatred toward anyone that struggles with that sin. I want that to be clear. And God doesn't have hatred towards the people. He hates the devil who helped create it. He hates the sin. And God doesn't want the sin to keep anybody from going to heaven. And when we stop trying to do what the family's designed to do, which is get each other to heaven, teach your children so that they can grow up and teach their children. Do you notice what it had said in verse 1? Go back and look at that for a minute. I want you to remember, verse 2, I should say, that you may fear the Lord your God to keep all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you, notice this, you and your son and your grandson. And what's the logical progression of that? He'll teach his son. They'll teach their sons. They'll teach their daughters. And we'll never have a problem of forgetting God. But what happened? Verses 8 through 12. We did forget God. We did stop teaching him to our children. And our nation and world has suffered for it. You remember, we've talked every time we've done this lesson, this series, that the devil has his eyes on the family. That he is stalking the family like a lion stalks prey. 1 Peter 5, 8. And he wants nothing more than for the family to be a mangled mess. And every time, every time a husband is not a godly leader, a mother is not a keeper at home in any regard and doesn't help her children, doesn't provide meals and do whatever she can to help with the family. Every time children are disobedient to parents, he wins. He wins. But every time you have a husband who says, I will speak where the Bible speaks. I will plant myself, Psalm 1, 1 and 2, like a tree by the waters that will be so well fed by the word of God that I cannot be moved. And a mother that says, I will follow after my husband's wisdom and guidance in the word of God. I will submit to his authority. I will do the things that the Bible tells me to do. And the children are raised and reared in that type of home. They grow up and obey their parents. The devil loses. And we're not in the business of letting the devil win in the church of Christ. So we need to stop letting him. Some of us are not even putting up a fight in the world today. We're just letting him have free will and free reign. And how's that working out for us? But our families are growing up not knowing the Lord. And the devil is mangling the family in the process. Our family vacations come to an end. But I don't want you to forget to take a family vacation from time to time. 
You know, every time I stand in a pulpit or Ryan stands in this pulpit and we proclaim the word of God, it will not always be about the family. It will not always be about baptism or grace or mercy. There are many subjects to cover in the word of God. And in order to speak the whole counsel, you have to speak on more than one subject a year and more than one subject a month. But let me encourage you, between now and the next time the family is discussed by one of our preachers, to take a family vacation, to stop and sit with your family and study about the family, to ask yourselves, to ask myself, am I being the husband? Am I being the wife or the mother? Am I being the child that God wants me to be? Don't forget to take a family vacation. It's too important. It's too important. And as you and I are children of God, we're expected to speak where the Bible speaks and be silent where it's silent. I've said that a lot in this sermon, haven't I? It's important. And perhaps you're here as one of those children of God, and you haven't been doing that. It would be a wonderful blessing for you to get your life back on track and to come back to the Lord and to rededicate yourself so that your family, so that you can be whole in the Lord again. Perhaps you're here and you're not a child of God and you want to become one. You can do that by hearing, believing, repenting, confessing, and being baptized. Those are all found throughout the book of Acts. Anytime someone became a Christian, those were the steps that were followed. Whatever need you have this morning, won't you please consider your family as together we stand and sing. Thank you so much for listening to this episode on the Scattered Abroad Network. We are grateful for your continued support as well as your continued prayers. If you would like to find out more about our network, please visit our website at scatteredabroad.org. We look forward to studying with you again soon. May God bless you.